This is the Local Hearted Podcast, episode number 19, with William Henry Price. Welcome to the Local Hearted Podcast. I'm Meredith Adler, and I am your host. Join me as we get to know the people who create the wide variety of art in Asheville and in the mountain counties of Western North Carolina. We'll also talk with some of the people who create opportunities for our local artists and help them shine. Hi, this is Meredith, and thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Local Hearted Podcast, and welcome if you are a new listener. I'm really excited for you to hear today's guest. My guest today is William Henry Price, a painter in the River Arts District of Asheville, North Carolina. Because one of William's mediums, gouache, is also one of my favorite mediums, I thought we might have some conversation about paint brands or pigments. (laughs) Well, far from it. I was literally spellbound hearing William talk about what his actual subject matter is, how he created his method, the teachings he accesses, and everything he's doing with his art. Some of the highlights for me of this interview include how William's dissatisfaction with painting landscape as scenery led to his current approach, the role of art in early cultures, and why art, quote, still wants to behave that way, end quote, and I am quoting William. William's discussion of the mystery of life, how William knows that a painting is finished, and how he manages to do such intense work in an open studio in the River Arts District of Asheville. I don't want to give too much away, so you can hopefully enjoy the actual interview as much as I did. So I'm not going to say too much else. I will let you listen and be spellbound as I was. Before I bring on the interview, I do want to mention what gouache is in case the non-painters of the audience do not know. Gouache is basically opaque watercolor. Regular watercolor paints are transparent. It's not that cut and dry between transparent and opaque, as it depends somewhat upon the pigment and how the artist uses the paints. But basically, think of gouache as opaque watercolor. Okay, I am thrilled to present to you William Henry Price. William, thank you so much for joining me on the Local Hearted Podcast today. I'm really excited to talk to you about your work. Well, thanks. My pleasure. Yes. So I guess it would be great if we could start with talking about what it is that you do. And I'll let you explain that in Mm. the way you like to. Well, I I make very intricate paintings uh, of nature. it's, it's always a little difficult to describe because they're abstract paintings in the sense of they're not scenery. They're, but, but I'm just trying to paint the, the aliveness of the world and uh, the paintings partake of the life processes. And I'm painting those patterns. 
Uh, and so they often have a, have a, a sort of abstract or non-objective um, quality to them. It's about the aliveness. Hmm. And say more about that. Like, where, where do you get your ideas and your inspirations? Well, I mean, mostly it, it, it comes from being in the woods and in the fields and, and out in the weather. Um, and just an awful lot of poetic research in, into the deep past and into what makes cultures um, and how art functions in, in particularly in early, early cultures. And uh, I found myself in alignment with uh, the woman painting designs on the pottery 5,000 years ago. Uh, she's upholding the life processes in the patterns that she's painting. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been doing, sort of just because that's where it's taken me. But I've always absolutely been been dedicated to nature, and there's always been a yearning to uh, be close to nature. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I was a straight-ahead landscape painter uh, back in the 80s, and, uh, and before that. Um, and it's a long story, but I mean, you know, at a certain point... I was in a transition and very frustrated because I had to keep making scenery out of it. I had to keep making space. Mm -hmm. And um, I can tell you there was one particular time in the Adirondacks when I was painting a, bro a rocky brook, living in a cabin, and the brook was oh, maybe two miles away through the woods. And, you know, when you spend the day painting by a brook, you're, you're lost in the sound of the brook and in the cool air in that cove. And the Adirondacks are something else. I mean, you're in a, you, know, you really feel the wilderness there. Uh, I mean, one time I was doing that, I was painting by a brook and I saw movement out of the corner of my eye and looked up across the way and my mind said squirrel but i looked at it and it was a mink oh a wild mink just right next to me it was like wow i didn't know you could do that right um so anyway i was i had been working on this oil study of a rocky brook for hours and i uh, packed up my gear and i and was trudging back through the woods at the end of the day and you're you're kind of euphoric and exhausted at the same time and the the late afternoon light was slanting through the woods and I stopped at a certain point and I had this feeling that I could paint everything at once. I had this feeling that somehow with all the dappled light, all the textures of bark and leaves and earth and the texture of the air itself that somehow I could just take an impression of the whole thing and not make a picture of it. I didn't 
know exactly how I would do that, but in that state of mind, it was a wholeness that I that I was immersed in. So I was frustrated for the two years leading up to that with painting scenery as if it's out there. I'm here, it's there. Me, it. You know, that mm-hmm. separation. Well, this was a this was an inkling of a of a holism of being immersed in nature. So two months later, I was back in New Jersey raking leaves in the yard, and I had this this again this sort of I was gripped by a, a compulsion to take an impression of those leaves, and I had been been doing some printmaking. I'd been making etchings. So I was thinking in terms of printing impressions of things. So I ran up to to my studio and I got some water-based inks and some rice paper and some printing paper. And I came down to the yard and I poured this thinned out ink onto the leaves and I tossed them like a salad and I pressed the paper onto the, the leaves thinking I would get this big crude smudge, which is kind of for whatever reason, that's what I wanted. You know, I just wanted it. But... I pulled the, the, the sheet off and it was delicate and energetic. It printed the traceries of the veins and the stems and the edges of the leaves and, and lots of great smudges. I, it was much more articulate than I thought it would be. And then I got out the hose and I was washing it down and letting the colors run and, and just, you know, I was like in a state. So I made all these prints in my backyard, you know, um, without using a printing press at all. But that started me on a kind of a path which took the brush out of my hand in a way. And it created the space on the, on the, the, uh, the picture plane that was analogous to the ground itself. And that was like a map. That was, that was what I was searching for in a way. So it opened a whole vista. At that point, I I began, I was making large oil paintings too, but um, when I let go of that obligation to describe the, the look of things, the appearance of objects out there, suddenly my inner nature started to pour forth onto the canvas and there were more, it had a much more for a brief time, psychological um, expression of of this sort of disowned self coming, you know, claiming its space. Uh, so I could do a painting of fear, or I could do a painting of grief, uh, or I had lost my father maybe a year and a half before that, and images came to mind which I associated with him, and you know, so it was this was a kind I could paint an elegy, you know, whereas before I was kind of just um, sensitively painting the nuances of surfaces of things. But now I was much closer to the essences of things. So that's a lot. What a gift, it sounds like. I mean, you were... I mean, you've explained it so well, I'm, I'm never going to be able to cap that. But you were frustrated with what you were doing, and you were open to receiving and finding something new, and you found something that 
not only allows you to put down, it sounds like the energies of the natural world is what you're doing. Yes, right. Put right. down the energies, but also to bring forth something that is so deeply personal inside yourself. You've found this method that... Uh, yeah, it's interesting, uh, Meredith. I, 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 now, after many years of since then of painting nature this way is I, I never feel that I am first of all I never feel I'm that I'm making abstract paintings mm -hmm. I'm always painting the life process I'm always painting nature mm -hmm. uh, and I also never feel that I'm involved in self-expression mm -hmm. yeah I mean I don't think the paintings are about me mm-hmm However, I mean, all along, I know that parallel to this is like, yeah, it probably reveals a great deal about me, about my personality, about my, you know, uh, inhibitions and, and foibles and past mm -hmm. life stuff, too, you know. Possibly, yeah. I think, uh, too, I was responding to when you were saying you could paint fear or you could paint mm -hmm. an emotion that mm -hmm. that would have to come from inside would that not yeah well you know it <laughs> that specific painting uh happened because i i in maine one summer i was uh out in a walking along a deadfall it was a, just a tangle of of trees and brambles mm -hmm. and i was probably picking blackberries or raspberries or something. But I heard something, and I thought, there's something there, and I started creeping along to the edge of this this stand of, of, of blowdown. And at the same time, this, you know, eight-point buck was coming the yeah. other way, and we, we met in the middle, and both ran like hell in opposite directions. I was terrified. <laughs> and then we both kind of stopped and looked back at each other. It's like, what? You know, it was like, what was the big danger? Uh -huh. Well, I thought about that moment of fear and I thought about painting that. Well, what happened immediately uh, was I painted this vicious wolf. This teeth been, you know, saliva. It was like the Hound of the Baskervilles. Mm. It was, it was just a vicious, snarling image. So it was interesting that I, w I wanted to paint fear, and I painted this sort of rage, this cornered animal that's fear. Mm -hmm. And here's where it gets kind of personal because uh, I had to hang it up and let it dry for a long time. It was oil. It was actually a monoprint. It was huge. It was six feet high. Um, I wondered why that came so easily. I mean, I was sort of this benevolent, uh, very um, uh, outwardly calm person. And yet that expression was like just in me, you know. And I and a week went by, and I and I pondered this, and I looked at the, this beast, and I realized the eyes of the of the wolf were really the eyes of my father, who was a drinker and raged every night. 
I mean, he had a lot of aspects to him, and he was a wonderful man in some ways. But I knew that rage um, and felt it in myself, too. But um, you got me to talk about that. That's <laughs> funny. Uh, you were painting an energy again, it sounds like, in a way. Yeah, yeah. I think now I I will put a, a concentrated rage into my paintings. It's in a square inch of space, you know. Um, and I don't know that rage is the right world, right word. Um, I think it's wildness. Mm. It's wildness. It's like coming upon an actual tiger, mm -hmm. you know, in the wild. Mm -hmm. And I want to paint that, that moment of, of apprehending or the, the amazing um, otherness of holding a bird in your hand. I want my paintings to feel like that. So that's where it goes now when I'm painting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that started with those leaves mm -hmm. in that stream. That was years ago, is that yeah. what you said? Yeah. And so has it evolved since then? And are you still really going out into nature to have those experiences now? What are you doing since then? Well, it has evolved. It's a really good question. I, I, to my amazement, I sometimes still will start a painting with a pile of leaves. Uh, I mean, I never expected that when I first did it, that that would be a, a mode of working. But uh, sometimes I do that because I want that ground, that imprint of, of organic aliveness that I didn't invent to embroider and see what will emerge from that. Very much like a divination. I mean, a shaman will look at some mottled surface, maybe, like a rock, ask a question in his mind, or have, or have some healing that needs to happen, and discern patterns, mm -hmm. discern images in the pattern. Mm -hmm. So in a way, my paintings are a little like that. I've often thought that. But, uh, but often I... It, technically, I mean, I, I don't start a painting that way. I will just launch into it. And it, it's coming from, I'm pointing to my gut, you know, mm -hmm. it's coming from my lower chakras out as a gesture. Another way of saying that is I often feel like I'm just painting with my body. It's like an athletic thing. Mm -hmm. As heady as I can be, I, I, I still don't know what I'm thinking when I'm painting. Mm. You're going by some impulse, is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but my connection with nature is still there, and more so. Um, to answer your question, a lot of what is, goes on now is I spend time in the woods, and I sit down with my notebook, and I do a kind of um, invocation or, or attunement with my high self. And I make connection with a plant or a rock or a stream, and I have dialogue, and I write the dialogue. I have an imaginary conversation with the stream. And she says wonderful things to me that seem to be teaching me things about 
life and about the world. And they seem to be things that I swear to God I couldn't invent with my own mind. They're, they're just very insightful to me. I mean, usually I, I begin the dialogue with the question of what, what do I need to know? What would you like me to know? Mm-hmm. I say to the river, you know. Back to that openness. Maybe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm not there to get something. I'm not there as a landscape painter and I need this. You mm-hmm. know, I'm there to say, what do I need to know in order to have a better communication? Is kind of what I'm saying. And so I get these lessons about uh, my psyche, my mental body, and, uh, and colors, and sounds. So often I will have, I know I'm going way off in left field here. No, not at all. Often I will have a tree or a plant say to me, oh, you sing, sing. And so I'll sit there and I'll, I'll improvise a little song out loud in the woods. And she'll say, that's better. You see those greens and blues? That's better than those reds and browns that were mucking things up when you got here, you know? So it's like they're reading the energies. Well, I don't, I don't go and do anything with that except I, it's my personal teaching. So I can't believe I'm telling you this. <laughs> I have never told anybody this. Oh my goodness, then I am so honored. And <laughs> it will be up to you whether this becomes public. We'll have to talk about it. That's... I, fascinating it actually I say I, I haven't talked about it but I have been writing about it because it's very compelling and after the years of doing this you become comfortable with it mm-hmm. and every once in a while I realize that uh, not everyone's uh, you know on the same wavelength you know you don't you don't just spill mm-hmm. you don't just talk about this at a at an opening or, or a dinner party. Uh, but I am writing about it because I think it's, it's a key to what we need to be doing in our time, both in terms of nature and, and the environment and in terms of art. And more and more I feel uh, an obligation to talk about it. it it's, my, it's my teaching to my students. And my readers. And when you say you're writing, mm. are you writing articles or a blog or a book? Or at this point, do you know what you're doing with your writing? Yeah, I'm writing a book. It's it's bifurcated into two projects. Uh, I mean, a typical thing for a first-time writer. I say first time. I've been writing for years, but not publishing. Is to try to put everything into the book. But it could be several books or a series of books. Mm-hmm. So first, I'm, pu- I'm putting together um, uh, a kind of studio catalog of a book about my paintings and commentaries about how the paintings came about, uh, similar to this conversation in that book. The other book is, is mo- more like this conversation. It's much expanded. It talks about Navajo imagery and the ceremonials of the Navajo and how the image and the chant 
function, um, how art functions, what the training of the artist in ancient Egypt, mm. um, which was a 20-year initiatory process before you could mm. call yourself an artist. Well, I love that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so there, are, and then, and so that's part of the book. It 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 opens out into indigenous cultures, and uh, my work as an artist and my work with nature is the springboard to to a larger subject of how art wants to function and how it's been disowned. In a nutshell, uh, art everywhere in every time was an exchange with the invisible powers, with the gods, with the holies. And you needed art to do that. They didn't have a word for art as its own thing. It was it was the gifts, you know, or the praise. Mm -hmm. Well, when we've banished all of the gods and all the aliveness of everything and live in a world where everything's inert matter, Art still wants to behave that way, and you can look at art history as, as art finding its level like water behind boulders. Uh, it's still as beautiful as ever, but it's really about the vitality of the life energies. That's what art is. So that's what I'm writing about. Yeah, so it's a book. Uh, there are a couple of articles, um, offshoots, branches of that. That I mean, it, it's there's such a vast amount of research that I've done. Mm -hmm. Right now, I'm preparing a talk, and that usually stimulates a lot of writing, mm -hmm. and that in itself becomes a kind of chapter, you know, that I hadn't anticipated. I see. Okay. Well, I'm really looking forward to this book, so I hope you'll <laughs> let me know. When it's I ready, sure will. I will yeah. really look forward to that. Thank you. That I really appreciate you sharing about works that haven't been released yet. Thank you very much. And I want to bring you back to where you were a little earlier. You were talking about that sometimes to this day you continue to you you have the process where you continue to use the leaves to start a painting as a sort of divination process. And how does that go? Like, what do you do next? How does it go for you? What is that oh. like? Uh, well, you know, um, then it's a, it, become a, it's, it becomes a process of painting into that ground of, of activity. Mm-hmm. Even in and of itself, it has a lot of vitality already. Um, and sometimes I find the pattern itself has pictorial energies that I like. There's energy. And so whatever I do comes out of that. But sometimes I, it's, it's a ground and I put something onto it. Um, but a lot of the process is painting in between the smudges painting the the delicate edges of these random organic shapes sometimes i'll just be outlining them with a fine brush uh i keep doing that for months a lot of the time i will take say a reddish color 
for whatever reason. And I'm painting in between the shapes where the white of the page is. Let's pretend I'm doing a watercolor. Mm -hmm. Then I will paint out the, let's say the, the leaves were printed in a, in a dark umber. I'll start painting them out with a similar shade of red, only opaque. So I've got the transparent watercolor in between in that reddish tone. And I've got the opaque gouache painting over those dark shapes. So that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to equalize everything. Mm -hmm. uh, it's as if I have this urge to make a weaving out of it. I want everything to lock in in the same space but be articulated, even though they look wild and splashy and random, they are carefully painted, sort of lovingly painted as if I were a, a Celtic metal worker. I'm working with gold, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I, I, I end up finding the edges of shapes. Uh, and... I'll be painting along for, um, in a sort of monochromatic way almost sometimes, or it could be a million colors, and gradually I'm, I'm unifying it. I think most of my process is, is like ultimately equalizing everything in a way so that everything is part of everything else, and there's no background at all. And there's nothing in most of my paintings that you could call a background. Everything is everything. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That was something I wanted to talk to you about. I'm like, talk to William about negative space because, uh -huh. yes, I've seen that in your work. Not all of them, like you said, right, but right. many, many of them. But I also notice when you stand back from them, there's negative space. Base only in that if the colors are closer together in a larger area or mm -hmm. just a little calmer energy in an mm -hmm. area, then other areas do stand out more. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Sure, yeah. yeah. That's, I'm like, it's like you, there's a shape everywhere mm -hmm. on these pages. There's mm -hmm. always a shape, but some of them just happen to be closer in color, closer in value that they, from a distance, or when looking at them as thumbnails on your website, uh -huh. that's when you can see certain things are standing out more. Yeah, thumbnails are always a challenge for me, or any small image, because it they're so intricate, mm -hmm. and they're not very large anyway, but um, it's very hard to find something that looks decent yeah. in, in such a reduced size. Yes. Um, I think another thing that most people would never notice, often my paintings will have a naturalistic rendering of a bird or some flowers or a dragon um, or a bull or an animal. But I'm, they're never painted, almost except for one painting that I can think of, with a naturalistic light. There's no shadow. There's no light and shadow. It's, it's a painting of a robin, but the light is perfectly even. It's about the plumage itself and the aliveness in the eye of the animal. And uh, I want it out of time. 
or it is out of time, whether I want it or not. So it's, it's not like Vermeer, where there's a specific time of day and the light's coming through a window and it's, and it's causing this pearlescent light and dark and it's so lovely. But it's, it's the opposite of that Dutch realism. It's closer to Persian painting and Tibetan painting. Um, and I'm saying this because when I, as you were asking me about the shapes and the negative spaces, uh, I was thinking, but they don't feel airless to me because it's almost like everything in the painting is reflecting the sky often. Uh, and I just, you know, I hadn't thought of that until you were asking me. But I, it is my hope that they're full of air, but there's, n but there's very little um, empty space mm -hmm. in the paintings. Yep. More and more lately, I have been broadening things out and finding areas where it becomes intensely compressed and intensely alive. And it coincides with uh, thinking a great deal in the last year, the last two years, probably the last five years, but recently really thinking a lot about what is a seed and what is it that makes a seed germinate? And I seem to be trying to paint that awakening. You read botany books and they say, well, it suddenly takes up moisture. And all of these things which are like collapsed balloons compressed into this, to this space of the seed start to fill and take, take on form. And it's the whole plant that's in there. And it splits open the shell and sends down shoots. And it has an instinct to do that. But then they say, but what that is, is a mystery, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and I say, you're my brother, you know, you scientist, because it's a mystery and, and, and we should all stop the presses and say, wait a minute, what is life? How did we get here? What are we doing here? And shouldn't we just care for each other? in the process but that's another yeah i don't i don't know if i'll make this part of the show but you're really reminding me of a time coming from like a social work psychology background being in a continuing ed class about i think it was about substance abuse and mm. they were showing the chemical reactions of how things happen in the brain mm. And they kept going backwards and backwards and backwards, but it was like that original impulse. They, that is where the discussion stopped short because it's the mystery. Yeah. Who is it that's thinking? Who is it that's sensing things? Mm -hmm. When you get to that level, it's just who you truly are when everything worldly slips away is this vibratory force and suddenly there's no separation between vibrations of you and me and the acorn and the stream um 
for a while in my meditations, I would, I would ask, if I can speak this way, I would ask my high self to connect to my soul. And I would say to my soul, what do you want me to do today? It takes a lot of courage to ask that question, actually, because you've got your list. Yeah, right. <laughs> For one thing, you know. <laughs> and uh, my soul would say, the most amazing, obvious thing you could think, enjoy every moment and cherish every encounter. And that is a hard thing to do. I would get up from the meditation and say, yeah, I'm going to do that. And 20 minutes later, I would be embroiled in some difficulty, you know, on the stove or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. It would just be, uh, it, it was like, am I enjoying this moment? But, but it's a practice. It's a walking meditation to say, I wish you happiness. And, uh, oh, for a moment there, I forgot to love this life I'm living. Because I'm terrified or whatever, right. you know. But, but one time my soul said to me, I am in everything you encounter. And that's a profound thing. Because that's who I am, ultimately, is my soul. My personality has all kinds of things it's, it's struggling with. Thank you for the reminder and the teaching and... The sharing of what came to you in that way. And thank you. I'm sorry I'm being so highfalutin here. Yeah. I can't believe it. All right. We are talking about art. <laughs> I think you were sort of saying earlier, that's what your paintings are. You're painting the oneness and you're painting showing that Okay, so back when you were talking about your process, you mm -hmm. referred to it as a weaving. Mm -hmm. When have you gotten what you wanted out of it? How do you know that? Um, well, for one thing, the paintings always take me somewhere way beyond what I could have imagined. Um, when I finish a painting, I'm elated, even though it's taken me months to... to to go through, I mean, and often, most often, there's a period in the middle where it's just going down and I'm losing it and it's just dreary and I'm flat-footed and, you know, uh, it's hard. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I know that I will pull it out. Uh, if you just keep going, you just sort of sit with it or leave it alone for a couple of weeks, you know, mm -hmm. that helps often. But I know that I can go through, cross the threshold uh, that's, that I've encountered in the process of the painting. And that when I reach the completion of the painting, I feel an elation. And it's always my hope that it's, it's beneficial to, to everyone who would see it. Mm -hmm. uh, that probably sounds almost heretical, but in our time, in our postmodern time, but that's what I think. Sounds like 
though you have a lot of loving intentions in mm -hmm. your painting. So yeah. hopefully yeah. that would affect the people who view them. So the elation, is that the result of what you're seeing that you know you're done, or is the elation what tells you you're done? Yeah, it's the elation that tells me I'm really? done. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And, and it's like I'm nearing completion of a painting right now, but three days from now, I could see that I, I'm not nearly finished. Uh, here's an example. I mean, uh, this painting that I'm working on, I, I assumed I was going to, I was reaching for something that was going to take me quite a while yet, but suddenly it, I did about three things in the last two days to the painting and it's like, wow, it, it, it suddenly arrived. And today I saw one little thing that I should do to it. And it was very busy in the studio. I couldn't paint today, but, um, that's how it goes. I mean, sometimes I think I'm finished because I've worked on it so long and it's like, I can't see anything more to do to it, but I have to notice that I'm not like, like euphoric. And sometimes I will have the painting photographed and framed and put on the wall or put it in an exhibition. And it's like, mm, I, there, I see something I need to do to it. Or it's just really, it's, it's fine the way it is, but it's not alive. Something's missing. And I don't know what it is. But, you know, you saddle up and, and you ride into it again. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's happened a few times. You can feel when it's yeah. still cooking. Yeah. Sounds like. Right. Okay. And it, just a moment ago, you answered a question that was coming to mind, but let's mm. make this more manifest because I know you are a studio artist in an open studio in the River Arts District of Asheville. Mm. I was actually going to ask you, do you actually paint in your studio? Because this seems like such an intense process. Mm. You do obviously paint in your studio and how do you manage that in an open studio? It's surprising how many people walk into the studio and ask me if I paint there. <laughs> Although often I'm standing there painting so that answers it. But yes, I do. Um, however, it's, it's an odd thing having a, uh, a public studio, a studio slash gallery. First of all, it's two jobs. Being an artist is not a business. Being an artist is poetry. It's opening to all sorts of realms of, of imagination. Running a gallery is a business. You are being an art dealer. And typically the art dealer wants to tell the artist that he should paint some more of these because that's sold. And that is a real pitfall. Always the, the art dealer half has to serve whatever the artist is creating and find the market or the audience for, for that, even though it's changing. It's like, well, you know, you've changed your style or whatever. Mm -hmm. This happens all the time with gallery artist relationships. The artist will move on and bring in a, a, a or, or the, the dealer will come to the studio either way. And, and it's like, I can't sell this. And they drop the artist. It's like really a challenge. Um, but but I'm, I'm digressing a little bit. Uh, 
I decided to try this public studio business. And I love it and I thrive on talking to the people who come in. I meet the most wonderful people from all over the world who come to Asheville and, and are interested enough to come to artist studios. Um, but it, it does wear me out because I'm trying to do this other job which requires solitude, really. I've gotten quite adept at saying hello and having a conversation and even making a sale and then going right back to what I was doing on the easel. Um, but mostly my strategy is I go in early and I'm closed. Uh, in the winter months, I'm closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. And as you know, I have a business manager and she's not allowed to come those two days either. Oh. I just need to be alone. I need to be in a flow of my thoughts, which is, I don't even know what that is, but I, I, uh, I sort of come down to earth and go get lunch and then I go right back to it, you know? Okay. Do you, on those days when you are having visitors that you're painting also? Yeah. Just thinking about all the other things you've said, do you ever find the energies of the visitors playing out in the painting and the work? I don't think so. Uh, However, I mean, sometimes just a, a really knowledgeable and sensitive person comes in and we have an amazing conversation springing from the work itself. Mm -hmm. And um, that's certainly um, nourishing for me. It isn't necessary. And sometimes it's, it's the wrong thing. I mean... At certain stages in the painting, somebody comes in, I want to hide the painting because I don't want any comments about it. Not that I'm worried about anybody looking at it, but I just don't want to have any discussion about it. But surprisingly, I'm, I'm inured to those influences. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm in my own dream with work. I'm in my own um, process and it's uh, like a carpenter. So, you know, somebody could come in and, and make comments, but I'm still making the cabinets, mm -hmm. you know, out of, out of uh, cherry, you know, or whatever. So I know what I'm doing, you know, yeah. Although, which is, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. Right? <laughs> so it's always a discovery when you're painting. Sure. Yeah. Sometimes I have a, an idea. Sometimes I, I have an image that seems to come to me complete. And I have never once painted that, that whole idea. Um, but usually the impetus for the painting is a quality of light, uh, the motion of the stream, the way the sunlight plays on the surface of the water. And that launches me into the painting. I think that's what I'm going to paint. And um, associations happen. I'll suddenly remember, almost like daydreaming while I'm painting, a kingfisher flying over my head and just barely missing me in the Adirondacks and flying down this, this roaring brook. And I think, oh, I'll put a kingfisher in the painting. It's just instantaneous. And I don't stop to question it. 
and I make maybe make a few drawings or I just put it in. I just start painting a kingfisher. And in this brown painting, it, it introduced this electric blue because I made the kingfisher much bluer than, than the average kingfisher. And I invented the plumage anyway. I mean, it's not totally accurate. And so when that introduced blue and, and, you know, a week later I visited a friend and she had come back from India with a skein of silk that was just beautiful turquoise, the whole thing. And I just, that turquoise got inside me and the next thing I started putting it into the painting across the bottom and, um, and had this idea that this chaotic pattern that was like cascading water could turn into an eightfold Islamic geometry, which then became like a net. And here's this kingfisher, the fisher king, and the net of, of existence, you know, evaporating into this blue ether. I mean, I didn't anticipate any of that. So when you're in the midst of a work, you're incorporating things that kind of come to you as flashes almost and also things that inspire you around you things that like the turquoise very much so i mean they just come across my desk as it were they come across my path um and often i accumulate stacks of images which i'm not really looking at but i but it's like oh this is you know relating to the painting you know, I read a great deal of, of history and mythology, and so sometimes the, there's a, a language connection between images that calls up um, the goddess Diana. Or, you know, and then I start, well, maybe I should paint stags in this painting because she's associated with stags and, and hounds. And I thought, oh, maybe I should put hounds. And maybe that never happens. But I go through that in my head, mm -hmm. too. So there's a story coalescing sometimes. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. All right, where are we going next? I, all right, I will say this. I feel like this has helped me understand your work so much. Like, I knew what I thought when I looked at it. I knew what I felt when I looked at it. And I know you tuck little things into it and that's kind of fascinating. But this has helped me understand mm. so much better what your end of it. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, that's good. That's great to hear. Mm -hmm. So now we've talked about what it is that you do and all the input and inspirations. What about letting the listener know who I'm talking to, where, where you came from, what you've done in the past related to art and not related to art. So how did you get your start in art, etc.? Well, you know, I was this skinny kid in the suburbs in, in Pennsylvania. I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Um, and as I think I said before, I, I just wanted to be in the woods. I mean, that was, I mean, if I was supposed to be doing my homework, I'd be up at my desk drawing wildcats and, and hoofed animals and, and beaver and underground forts and tree huts and, and, uh, just 
I'd sit at the dinner table imagining that we were eating nettles and cattail shoots mm. rather than spinach and whatever, you know, potatoes. I was Daniel Boone. I just wanted to be an Indian, mm-hmm. you know. And my best friend, R- Ricky, and I w- just roamed up and down Monocacy Creek and across the fields. And we talked about how the Indians could walk silently even in the autumn with all the leaves, and we'd try to do that, and it was impossible. But um, So, I mean, it was always just, I I mean, sometimes I would draw race cars and stuff, but, you know, mostly it was uh, about raccoon fur and, and uh, wild berries, and that's all I wanted. And I don't know why I was obsessed with that. The other thing is, I was totally captivated and fascinated with Africa. And I had a big National Geographic map of Africa on my wall. I still have that map, actually. Uh, it has Tanganyika and Zanzibar and, I mean, places that, that have been reabsorbed into other nationalities now. Mm-hmm. But um, I was drawing all the time as a kid. And when I was seven years old, my father gathered up a stack of my drawings and took me to see a man named Will Baylor, who was an artist who had a painting class in Bethlehem on the south side. And I wandered around looking at at all the oil paintings going on in this adult painting class. While my father showed him my work and talked, they were talking a long time. Well, that guy took me on as a as a painting student. This skinny little kid with in a white T-shirt in an adult painting class, and he taught me how to paint by showing me. He never explained much of anything verbally. Was a gentleman, a really good artist, and. He'd come by my easel and I'd be painting a stuffed animal uh, or I'd be painting from a postcard picture of uh, sailboats. And he'd say, well, let me sit there. And I'd watch him take ultramarine blue and cadmium red medium and casually mix them together, not like homogenize them, just kind of casual. And then he'd put this rich line of dark that he had made from that blue and that red, and I just learned it. He never explained, well, here's how you mix this color and that. Uh, And I continued to study painting with him once a week, one evening a week, for eight years, until I left home when I was 15 and went to prep school. And by then, I knew an awful lot about painting. I had made maybe a dozen woodcut prints, linoleum prints, and I'd painted in oils and acrylics and watercolor and pastel and charcoal drawings, and and it wasn't like it was a curriculum. It was just, what do you want to do next? You know, and I'd see something, and and uh, a lot of those paintings were, were um, tigers and leopards and clipper ships out in rough weather, and... Uh, when I got to be a teenager, I did drawings of folk singers and, uh, um, you know, more cultural things. But I, I, I'm still painting those leopard spots. 
Mm. Yes. Yeah. That wildness. Yeah. I, I have never uh, deviated from that. It's, it's sometimes fascinating to me. I'm still that seven-year-old kid. And in fact, often w it, at the beginning of a work session, when I come into the studio in the morning, I will remind myself to be seven years old. That way, you're not worried about the art world. You're not worried about the, the critical public at all. You're thinking, what is the coolest thing I could paint here? Mm. You know, and mm -hmm. it's sort of like tigers and stuff. You know? You're just having your experience. I mean, it's not childish. And I have all this sophistication and, and an awful lot of scholarship and technique. So I, I'm standing there as an adult, but I'm upholding that, that, that um, sweet kid that I was. Who gave you your start. Yeah. And I'm very grateful to that man, Will Baylor. I learned a lot from him. Sounds like that was a teacher who gave you exactly what you needed. Yeah, yeah. So, do you what? want to talk at all about your education and other things that you have done? Do you want to mention that? There isn't that much to say. I mean, um, when I... When I was preparing to go to college, it was actually a little bit of a question whether I would study music or painting. It wasn't that big a question. And and I certainly made the right choice. I've never I, I still play music and I and, and music has never left my life, but uh, I'm a painter and a writer and a teacher. I use music in my teaching often. And, and this talk I'm preparing actually involves some demonstrating some some music. And I just I play in in community orchestras. I always have, and that's uh, you know sufficient. Um, so anyway, I I knew I would major in painting, and I had wonderful. I went to Boston University, which was a traditional almost 19th century art school in the 70s when everyone was still in the backwash of, of uh, abstract expressionism and uh, minimalism was happening by then and conceptual art. But I was in this school where we were drawing the figure and drawing the skeleton in the anatomy room at night and learning to grind our paints, and I had wonderful teachers who, many of whom were good painters and, or had written a book on anatomy for artists, or Reed Kay had written a book on the methods and materials of, of art, and I studied with them. Mm -hmm. I did not go to graduate school immediately. I, I ended up teaching immediately. <laughs> uh, and painting. And, you know, uh, many years I was a full-time painter trying to figure out how to survive and how to make that work. And finally, I was teaching at Seton Hall University as an adjunct. I was teaching design and painting there. And uh, this was that big transition that I, I was in. I was painting these landscapes, mostly rocky brooks, and the rocky coast of Maine, 
trying to do something that I couldn't quite do. I was trying to you know, solve that problem of painting scenery and wanting to paint this immersion. And uh, I was stuck for two years. I was just bashing away at these paintings uh, and not finishing any of them. And I realized I needed to really see some older artists who could maybe help me, maybe see what I was trying to do. And at the time, my department head kind of was suggesting, why don't you go get your, your Master of Fine Arts degree? Because I was a part-time teacher. She said, even if I had a position, I couldn't give it to you with your BFA. Well, I hadn't been interested in graduate school, but then it suddenly dawned on me, this is exactly what I need right now as a painter. I need to go back into uh, a critique situation that will be helpful. So I ended up going to Rutgers, which was interesting. I mean, it's a really intense New York art school. A lot of Marxism, feminism, discussions of, of post-structuralist philosophy and semiotics, and a lot of polemical political content. And here I was a landscape painter. It was great. It was great. And I studied with some really wonderful people there and went through this transition that I'm describing while I was in graduate school. That painting of fear, that vicious wolf, was done in the printmaking studio at Rutgers. Mm. Um, and the leaf prints happened in those two years. Uh, not that it was that supportive. I mean, you learn to think on your feet and to withstand uh, critical attacks on your, your very heart's work. It was hard. Mm -hmm. And I read a lot of art criticism. I took a class in art criticism, and uh, that was painful. <laughs> well, I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. So music, do you see that as connected to the painting at all? How, how so? Very much so. I think, I, I, I mean, to a certain extent I have synesthesia, whereas I, I see sounds and hear colors in a certain way. I, when I think of the sound of the brook or the sound of the wind in the trees or a bird song or if I imagine myself singing, then I know exactly what to do in the painting. It's as if I'm just notating that. So it's, you know, it's a lot like orchestrating. It's a lot like um, improvising a song, painting the edge, uh, or painting. If you breathe with the red as it goes on, you feel like you're singing the red. Mm. Uh, and it's sometimes something I suggest to my students. It, yeah, music is is uh, the. <laughs> it's all speaking. It's all language, and. Uh, when you're when you're using the language of of color and shape and direction and gesture, you're using the language of the seed germinating and sprouting too, or the 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 eons it takes to erode the granite. That's a, a language 
that's happening all the time in creation. Mm -hmm. And so I think of language as truly creative as the ancients did. Mm -hmm. And your brain to mind something from one of the videos you actually made mm -hmm. on your website that everyone can go check out. Uh, there are, you showed the notations of the birds singing and how oh. that connects with your art. Right, right. I, I love that. Um, you know, they're usually called sonograms or, or spectrograms of uh, where they'll chart out the, the vib vibrations of a bird song visually. So it's a very good idea when you're in the woods, for instance, and you're hearing a bird song to visualize that spectrogram. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the spectrogram of, say, a wood thrush, it's like, oh my God, how could it be that elaborate? The shapes of the sound that's creating the marks on the page. Um, well, I, I mean, I love that, and, and I, I mean, I'm a birder, and I, um, as we speak right now, the migrating birds are showing up here, and I'm eager to get up on the ridge in the next few days and uh, see if, if the warblers have shown up yet. Today I saw a brown thrasher, it's just arrived, you know. Uh, so I'm, I'm very much in tune with the birds and where their nesting territories are up on the mountain. And around here too, but uh, I often think that I'm painting a sonogram. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm painting music, uh, except it doesn't have to be linear. And I talked about that in the in the video. Right. Um, it's not left to right or or anywhere in time because you're out of time. So you have this freedom. But if you're imagining that you're painting the sound that that indescribable sound of a red-winged blackbird in the marsh uh it's this it's a wild 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 image and i really want to paint that mm -hmm. cool <laughs> that's so cool oh william this has been the most amazing conversation i have to have more with you in the future but i know you have a time thing so i want you to tell me yeah. Should we let you go? <laughs> well, I think this was quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Meredith. Somehow you managed to draw <laughs> an awful lot out of me that surprised me. I had no idea this is what we would talk about. So uh, this is uh, definitely a conversation I'm going to have to take home and listen to and digest. And I think I will be constantly learning from what we talked about i really appreciate that and i will be in touch with you to talk about some of the more sensitive things that were talked about and see how okay. you feel about making those public okay, okay. yeah okay thank you well thank you mary yeah. a real pleasure check out the show notes at localhearted.com for links to william's sites and examples of his work and while you are there, if you want to make sure you never miss an episode, there is a sign-up for the mailing list. If you'd like to see William's work in person, his studio is at Pink Dog Creative at 348 Depot Street in the River Arts District of Asheville. His studio is open Wednesday through Saturday from 11 to 4 and by appointments. He also, of course, participates in the studio strolls for the River Arts District.
Thanks again for listening. This is Meredith Adler for the Local Hearted Podcast. And the podcast theme music, Learning to Fly, is courtesy of and copyrighted by Jamie Noter Thomas. It's time.